0: Welcome to the program. We expect today to have an embarrassment of comedy riches. We expect to speak with our old pal Will Durst in our second segment today, who we last heard was headed for a Giants game down in San Francisco. He will be in Sacramento next week, Friday, April 22nd, at the Coloma Community Center to celebrate a couple of anniversaries. Uh, It's the Humor Times' 20th anniversary, and it's Access Sacramento's 25th anniversary. We have had uh, James Israel, the editor of The Humor Times, on this program more than once. It's certainly a, a funny, worthy effort, and uh, we have Wilders to share. He appears on this program on a weekly basis, delivering his commentaries, and um, sometime later, those of a literary bent can read uh, <laughs> the same effort in The Humor Times. We also are pleased to be able to support Access Sacramento. That's how Mr. McMillan and I learned how to do radio. Uh, Ten was it eleven years ago now? My God, Shane Carpenter down there showed us how to do what you need to do to uh, to put one of these uh, shows together, and uh, that was a, a prequel to us getting on here to, to KDVS and of course KZFR, where we're rebroadcast every week. So. Uh, worthy event. We're going to be giving away tickets to that event on, during the Pledge Drive on next week's show, and it's nice to be able to offer that premium to you. In segment number two, we also expect to speak to a couple of up-and-coming young comedians, Jason Armenio and Michael O'Connell, who will be appearing this evening at The Graduate here in Davis. And, uh, you know, live comedy, they'll be actually at uh, six comedians uh, this, uh, this evening. Is something we'd like to see more of in Davis and in the greater Sacramento area. Anyway, last time I had a chance to talk to Will Durst and mention the fact that uh, we are now being rebroadcast up in, uh, in KZFR, thanks to the, uh, the good folks up at 90.1 FM in Chico. He said he thought it was a great town and loved to perform there. Don't know when he has done that uh, most recently, but um, just a word of the wise out there. Durst would love to come visit. Final plug, we should mention that uh, this event in Davis is being hosted by Corey Goebbels. I hope I pronounced that right, Corey. But uh, this this should be encouraged. We need more uh, comics out there doing what comedians do so well, especially in uh, the sometimes grim times we find ourselves in. And you know what, Mr. Millen, I think every other month on this program, we need to have a special comedy show. We're going to try and institute that, and I guess uh, we'll start today. You know, we have been looking for some comedy actors to do what we like to do, various skits and things in this program. If you want to help us produce something like that, well, by God, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We don't do as much of that as we used to, and by God, we would like to get back on the horse. All right, let us begin the program as we usually like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is, of course, April 14th, but before we cite the anniversaries of the actual date i want to note that something happened uh, two days ago plus 50 years that uh, we need to talk about that was on april 12th in 1961 when soviet cosmonaut yuri alexievich gagarin made the first successful manned spaceflight. during his flight aboard the spacecraft vostok 1 the 27 year old test pilot became the first man to orbit the planet and I'll have more to say about that a little bit later. But uh, April 14th, let's talk about that. It was on April 14th in the year 1198 that Hyacinth Bobo, an elderly cardinal deacon, was consecrated as Pope Celestine III, apparently just one day after being ordained as a priest. For once, I have absolutely nothing to add to that item. i just like to say Hyacinth Bobo. Because let's face it, <laughs> that is a showstopper name. On this date in 1912, the Titanic, running at full speed through the icy North Atlantic, struck an iceberg. It ruptured its hull, of course, and started to sink. I guess technically it didn't sink till the next morning. Our reference book, the History Channel's Day-by-Day Review of World Events, um, incorrectly states that uh, a young David Sarnoff, later the founder of NBC, was among those who picked up the liner's distress call. My understanding is that was a uh, an embellishment of Mr. Sarnoff to build himself up and win favor with the Marconi company. Although technically, I suppose he may have picked up the distress call, but to hear Sarnoff tell it, he was basically the guy that uh, was telling everybody about the disaster, and it apparently was just not so. On April 14th in 1956, the first videotape recorder was demonstrated by its trio of American inventors. The device, the size of a freezer, sold for $75,000. They, of course, had audio tape prior to this, an invention uh, that took place in Germany, which is one of the spoils of war in World War II, incidentally. But uh, if you've seen television shows before 1956, you undoubtedly have seen a kinescope where they would basically sync up the frames of a motion picture camera with that of the TV and basically film the broadcast i got to say, this was not the most eventful day in history because it's got items like this. On April 14th in 1993, British archaeologists uncover a 7,000-year-old fishing village on Dalma Island in the United Arab Emirates. Actually, I shouldn't be too hard on this date. Not only did the Titanic hit an iceberg... On this date in 1988, the Soviet Union agreed to withdraw its beleaguered troops from Afghanistan after more than eight years of fighting Islamic fundamentalist guerrillas funded by our own CIA. Of course, uh, we're now nine years into a war in Afghanistan with no sign of pullout. But to looking back in history, there was one uh, quite remarkable event that took place on April 14th. That was in 1865. This was the date that John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln while he was attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington. America's bloody civil war had ended just a week before and Lincoln had recently returned from uh, visiting the captured rebel capital of Richmond, Virginia. By the way, John Wilkes Booth was part of a conspiracy. No less than four of his co-conspirators were hanged for their participation. But it always sticks in my mind that Johnny Carson making a crack about uh, Jim Garrison's investigation of the Kennedy assassination said snidely, oh yeah, Jim Garrison, he thinks Lincoln's assassination was part of a conspiracy. Well, (laughs) it was, but boy, ridicule is an effective weapon. Our quote of the day comes from New Scientist magazine, which remarked in part due to the hysteria about the so-called nuclear catastrophe in Japan, that we have more to fear from climate change than nuclear power. I believe that summarizes the view of Sir David King, someone I was uh, uh, pleased to have been able to interview at Capital Public Radio some years ago, and who... uh, uh, was instrumental in in shaping the opinion of our guest on last week's program, Mark Hertzgard. We don't say we're pro-nuclear on this program, but we certainly tried to present a balanced perspective on this issue, which uh, is prone to a bit of hysteria. In future programs, we're going to try and talk about uh, some thorium reactors, which uh, uh, do not have the risks of proliferation that some of the uh, more conventional reactors do, and would refer you also to New Scientist magazine for their editorial discussion of this very issue. And speaking of physics, which we really weren't, but (laughs) I want to note for our quip of the day, the great quantum physicist Niels Bohr once remarked, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. For our jokes of the day, we're going to cite our pals over at the Humor Times, whose faux news section we frequently quote, and they had a some pretty good ones recently. Actually, some of these ones weren't that recent. This came in August 2010. Anyway, Dateline Transylvania. According to this news item, actual vampires are outraged by their portrayal as lame teens. Notes, notes the text, as the popularity of the Twilight series of books and movies continues to rise, so too does the anger of the vampire population. Vampires are seemingly united in their disgust with their portrayal as lame brooding teenagers said vampire coalition president vladimir tolstick in my 695 years i've never been more embarrassed to be a vampire and of course worlds, else but the humor times can you find the regular comedy stylings of andy borowitz who said dateline london stephen hawking aliens no longer interested in invading earth scientist says planet already pre-destroyed Mr. Borowitz reversing his recent position on the dangers of extraterrestrial invasion. Eminent theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking said today the planet is in no such peril anymore because the aliens are no longer interested in invading us. Assuming that the aliens have been monitoring Earth for the past month in preparation for an invasion they probably figured out it's no longer worth the trip. In recognition of his role in deterring an alien invasion, Queen Elizabeth II today knighted Tony Hayward, the CEO of oil giant BP. Another item. Dateline, Mason, Ohio. Rhonda and Simon Potter have finally admitted that their love for their 12-year-old son David reached its peak two years ago. The couple also expects that future love for their son will probably steadily diminish. Said Simon, 10 years of unconditional love is pretty good. I'm sure some parents give up a lot earlier. I could tell by the age of 10, the little guy didn't have a lot of natural athletic ability. That's disappointing for a father. I felt very let down. Noted Rhonda, at 10, he still had a cute little baby face. But every day since then, his face has matured awkwardly, making his appearance less cute and much less lovable. Now the acne's starting. That's hard to look at. Child David was surprised by the news, but is keeping a brave face. Maybe dad will start loving me more if I can be better at sports when I get to high school. Or maybe they'll get divorced and both have to shower me with love to fill up their emptiness within themselves. I'm trying to be optimistic. And finally, Humor Time special report notes that banks are now joining with Wall Street to purchase a new government. Uncle quotes Goldman Sachs CEO Gerald Corrigan saying, We recognize that things just get old and break down after a while, and rather than continue to to pour hundreds of millions into a bad product, we're business savvy enough to know that we need to roll out a brand new model. We've been running former CEOs for all the top posts like governors, etc., he said, but it's a messy process that's taking too long. We need action now. America trusts business, and they'll be happy with the new arrangement. I guarantee it. And we can back that up enforcement-wise with our new security team, like Blackwater, which will replace both the Army and police. Our stat of the day, the Japanese nuclear disaster apparently has had a little impact on Americans' views of nuclear power. 58% of Americans say nuclear power plants in the U.S. are safe, down just 2% from 2009. And our factoid of the day is that President Obama has admitted he's going to try and run again. Writing about this in the New York Times, Michael Shear said that, um, well, his attempt to get a head start on this is an indication of the new political challenges he's facing. He's no longer an unknown outsider who can get by in a message of hope and change. And yeah, we keep hoping, but he's not doing a whole lot of changing. Writing Obama in Vanity Fair some months back, Bruce firestein noted that after his first year in office, the president told Oprah Winfrey... He deserved a good, solid b for his performance so far. But to Mr. Firestein pondered the disparity between the Obama on the campaign trail and the Obama in the Oval Office and compares candidate Obama versus President Obama, such as soaring rhetoric. Candidate Obama. What we have already achieved gives us hope. The audacity to hope for what we can and must achieve versus President Obama. You know, I'd rather be a really good one-term president than a mediocre two-term president. I wonder how the comparison works for being a mediocre one-term president. On the issue of Guantanamo will be, we have candidate Obama, closed for good, versus President Obama, um, where we'll be holding uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's trial instead of New York City. And of course, there's always the refreshing knucklehead Bidenism <laughs> of candidate Obama, the first mainstream African-American who's articulate and bright and clean compared to President Obama. If we do everything right, there's still a 30% chance we're going to get it wrong. And finally, comparing candidate Obama to President Obama, we have the fringe nutjob taunt. For the candidate, it was Muslim. For the president, it's socialist. Anyway, that's enough of that. We'll, we'll leave the rest of the Obama discussion to uh, Will Durst future commentaries. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for shamelessness. With the news that Rutgers University announced it was paying Nicole Snooki-Polizzi $32,000 to speak to a student group. New Jersey's largest university admitted that it paid the star of the hit reality show Jersey Shore 2000 more than its paying Nobel Prize winning author Toni Morrison to deliver the school's commencement address. Said a spokesman for the university, the students canvassed for whom they wanted here and had the funds available. Snooki is perhaps best known for her advice to students, which is study hard, but party hardier. And I, I'm, I'm sure they couldn't be prouder at Rutgers. It was unfortunately a bad week last week for transparency, after President Obama accepted an award for supporting government transparency at a private ceremony from which the media and public were excluded. <laughs> Finally, it was an ugly week last week for Justice Antonine Scalia, who was ticketed by U.S. Park Police after a four-car fender bender, which he caused. Evidently, Scalia, age 75, was driving his car to work at the time of the accident, according to court spokeswoman Kathy Arberg. He was on the bench when court's morning session began at 10 a.m., but police said his car collided with a vehicle in front of him, triggering a chain reaction. Park Police Sergeant David Schlosser said Scalia received a ticket for following too closely. According to the Washington Post, the justice can pay the $70 fine and $20 assessment or contest the ticket in court. Gosh, what do you think he's going to do? Anyway, our our normal commentary for Mr. Durst apparently has been lost somewhere between AT&T Park and uh, our studio, but we'll try and get it for our third segment today. But I want to return back to the uh, thing we started out with at the top of the show, the fact this is the 50th anniversary this week of men into space, and and, and women too, speaking in the broadest sense. And for the record, the uh, first woman in space was Valentina Tereshkova, another Soviet first. But I just want to talk for a couple minutes about this fact. It was quite an epic moment. I'm old enough to remember uh, how the world was shocked by this. Starting with Sputnik in 1957, the Soviets were cleaning up in the the matter of space firsts. The Russians were the first to get into space, the first to put a man into space, the first to get to the moon, the first to get to another planet, first to put a woman up, first to have uh, multi-person crews, first to do a so-called spacewalk. The Soviets were aided greatly by the fact that at the end of World War II, the most advanced rockets in the world were... Those of the Germans, and while uh, a lot of the top uh, German uh, rocket scientists defected to the West rather than be captured by the Red Army, uh, it turns out that you know that most of the people working at the facility were in fact captured by the Russians, who benefited greatly from the fact that they also captured the German records, and in particular had some drawings of the V2 and uh, and, and the hardware right on site. But uh, while we're certainly no fans of the Soviet Union, you know, we think fair is fair. Uh, putting Gagarin in space was a hell of an accomplishment, and I just think that, uh, you know, we should offer a toast to, to all Russians for the great accomplishment of the Russian people, I guess you could say, in that great space first of Yuri Gagarin. was curious for me to have received an email uh, this very morning from a friend of mine I met in Siberia a couple years back when I was uh, chasing eclipses. My friend Yulia wrote to say she was enjoying uh, her being a university student in Denmark. I wrote her back to say, it's wonderful that you're enjoying uh, Western Europe, and for me there's a bit of extra pleasure to hear from a Russian friend on the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin. I remember the space race, and everyone, everyone, of course, remembers the Cold War, and it's nice to know that the world does make progress. I said I offer a toast to all Russians for Gagarin. It was quite a spectacular thing. But in reading about this, uh, it was no, I had to note that you know, people always want to put a spin on it. Apparently, the Vostok uh, 1 spacecraft was, was spherical, so they didn't have to worry about how it would re-enter. I'd like to know more about that. One website I, I read talked about how, well, it wasn't, they didn't really get a man up into space and back because there was no way they could land that thing, and Garn had to bail out when they were like up 15,000 feet up or whatever. I'm sorry, it still counts. Oh, it is rather hilarious. I <laughs> once read that, uh, you know, Gagarin came down in a, in a general vicinity, and there was some imprecision of where he would land. But, of course, being that the USSR covered one-sixth of the Earth's land surface, they did have a lot of leeway. My understanding, when Gagarin did uh, land on the parachute, <laughs> he started looking around for someone to, uh, to in essence, uh, tell the authorities I'm back. <laughs> he apparently came down as some peasants and said, where did you come from? And he said, Space! You know, we really need to talk about that at greater length, maybe uh, sometime next month, looking back at this. But uh, we've, we've bagged on National Review Online. It seems to get quoted in The Week magazine, even though it generally presents this incredibly wacky perspective. And of course, on this event, we'd be disappointed that they didn't have an appropriately insane viewpoint, which is as follows. I think I'll just quote. The Soviet Union held up his mission, the first man flight into space, as a major Cold War propaganda coup, portraying it as a glitch-free triumph of communist ideology. However, a new book published on the eve of the 50th anniversary of Gagarin's famous flight has revealed that scientists twice miscalculated where he would land, which is why there was no one there to meet him when he finally touched down 500 miles south of Moscow. For many years, Soviet literature claimed that Gagarin and his Vostok landing capsule had come down in the area it was supposed to, but this information was far from the truth. Soviet space planners had been expecting to land almost 250 miles further to the south. Therefore, the first thing he had to do after landing was set off to look for people and communicate so he could tell the leadership where he was. Oh, please. You know, what can you say for an organization founded by William F. Buckley? a man who literally worked under Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt at the Mexico City Embassy back in the 1950s. But I had to laugh at some of the responses people made to this uh, this purple prose on National Review Online, <laughs> apparently. A man nicknamed Bolsheviks Koshki said, Wait till they find out Reagan was standing on the wrong side of the wall when he made that famous tear-down-this-wall speech. <laughs> Someone named Yuri wrote to say, Pretty stupid nitpicking. Makes me ashamed to admit I read National <laughs> Review online. And someone named Small Gov sounded off saying, Sorry, one thing I can't stand is revisionist history. When it comes to first man in space, we've got to acknowledge the Soviets did it first and just deal with it. The USSR eventually collapsed due to its socialism and dictatorship, but they were flying high in the early 60s. As Ed Harris said as John Glenn in The Right Stuff, we just got to admit those Russian guys beat the pants off us and move on. I mean, we agree. Fair is fair. Let's play some appropriate Soviet music. Mr. McMillan, take a break and come back and have some fun with comedians. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.